Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit Filter, Season 3, The War on Drugs. Once upon a time, Ray, a century or so ago, you could go into any American pharmacy. don't know if you know this, Ray, but you could go into any American pharmacy and you could buy heroin and cocaine. Or, as I like to call it, the good old days. (laughs) (laughs) I got a couple of pennies, got a little tiny box of some nose candy. It's the weekend. In the 1890s. The Sears and Roebuck catalogue, which at the time was being distributed to millions of American <laughs> homes, had for sale a syringe and a small amount of cocaine oh. for a dollar fifty. Oh, that's not bad. Something for the housewives, <laughs> just that little thing. If you're looking for a little stocking stuffer at Christmas time for the kiddies, <laughs> throw that in there. <laughs> Keep keeps them happy all day long. Oh my god! Oh yeah. Here's here's a list. Here's a list of some of the most popular cough mixtures. All right. In the United States from the early 20th century, um, we have your uh, cocaine-bearing medicine and drinks, Dr. Bernie's Qatar powder, Dr. Agnew's Qatar powder, Dr. Cole's Qatar cure, Crown Qatar powder, Tucker's Asthma Specific, Coconola, <laughs> Celery Cola. <laughs> Fucking Celery Cola. I'd be like, just keep the celery, <laughs> put more cocaine in. I mean, what? what how hard is space. this? Wiscola, Pillsbury's Coke, Cola Aid, Cos Cola, Cafe Cola, Coke, Coca Bola. That was a clever one. They were like, how do we avoid trademark infringement? I know. We'll change a lot. We'll call it Coca Bola. No, 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 Your Honor. No, no. See, I, I, I can understand why it's confusing, Your Honor. Let me help. What? That's the point of trademark infringement? No, well, forget that. It's not confusing at all. It's very clear. Coca Cola over here, Coca Bola over there. Right. I can't see the problem. Um, tobacco bullets, 
Ooh. Uh, I, w- I want some of those. And Wonder Workers, they all had cocaine in them. Hell yeah. Uh, then you had your morphine-bearing medicines, like Dr. Fowler's strawberry and pepsin mixture, uh-huh. uh, Dr. A. Boschy's German syrup habitina, Dr. Fenner's cough cold syrup, Professor Hoff's consumption cure, Dr. Moffat's tethina teething powders, Dr. Bull's cough syrup, Jackson's magic balsam, I think that's what Michael Jackson was on his entire life, Van Totter's cough pectoral, Dr. Farney's teething syrup, linseed licorice and chlorodyne pastilles. I have that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, chlorodyne. Love a bit of chlorodyne. Pastilles Panerai, Dr. Faye's Pepsin Anodyne Compound, Dr. Miller's Anodyne for Babies, with, now with added morphine, <laughs> Cola's One Night Cough Cure, Hooper's Anodyne, The Infant's Friend. Oh, you bet Oh, look, honey, he's sleeping through the night now. Yeah, fuck it. Where do I get some of that? <laughs> Dr. James's Soothing Syrup Cordial, Yonkerman's Consumption Cure, Shiloh's Cure, Adamson's Botanic Cough Balsam, Jadway's Elixir for Infants. She could not get enough of giving <laughs> morphine to infants in America <laughs> in the early 20th century. <laughs> yeah. Anti-Camnia and Codeine Tablets, Ammonal with Codeine and Camphor, Royal Headache Tablets, Sal Codia Bell, Children's Comfort, Cops Baby's Friend, Mr. Winslow's Soothing Syrup, Gucci's Mexican Consumption Cure, Dr. Grove's Anodyne for Infants. And we wonder why there were two fucking world wars early in the 20th century. Every, they were fighting over... The chips? Just... Oh. They, they were just, you know, they were going cold turkey on uh, their morphine medicine. They'd been brought up with as a baby and... Then you had your uh, cannabis indica-bearing medicines like Victor Infant Relief. I know that's a favourite of yours, right? Oh, yeah. And Piso's Cure, a remedy for coughs and colds, um, and the list goes on. Of course, uh, in the late part of the 19th century, there was a new soft drink called Coca-Cola that was made from the same plant as snortable cocaine. <laughs> in Britain, the classiest department stores sold heroin tins for society women. In George Washington's day, he grew hemp at Mount Vernon as one of his three primary cops. crops. In the 1850s, you could buy medicinal preparations of cannabis in American pharmacies. By the 1880s, there were hashish parlors and opium dens in every major city on the East Coast. It's estimated that just in New York alone, there were over 500 opium Damn. dens. An article in Harper's Magazine of 1883 describes a hashish house in New York, which was frequented by large by a large clientele, including males and females of the better classes. Um, so we wouldn't have been let in. For, and, there, and there were talks about similar parlors in in Boston, Philadelphia, and Chicago. So Ray, what I want to know is, yeah. Yeah. when did the war on drugs start, and why? That's the question. I want to investigate on this yeah. series three of the bullshit filter. Right. So yeah, um, if I can enter my ject here, I was looking up just doing some basic uh, research. Why are drugs like heroin, cocaine, you know, marijuana illegal? And some of the standard answers I got back was, you know, they're addictive. You'll keep on taking them. You'll soon have no control over your life. You'll give up on, you know, your organized life. You'll spend money on things you shouldn't do. Um, you shouldn't. You shouldn't spend money on. Um, 
it gives you an artificial endorphin release instead of seeking a real life endorphin endorphin relief, maybe through sex or whatever, um, that ruins a person's life. It also ruins the economy and society. And so you get all these patent uh, patent answers about why all this stuff is illegal, it's immoral, it's evil, but we're going to dig down and try to find the truth to all this. Did you say patent pants's answers? Yeah, I got, I got a little carried away. I, I snorted some Vicks. And, well, you don't want to know. But anyway, I, I got a little carried away with my alliterations there. I apologize. So, you know, I want to delve into the history of the war on drugs. I want to um, also then we'll, as we get towards the end of the series, we'll start to explore the, the ethics and, and the morality behind society telling a group of people they're not allowed to do something to their own body. Right. Is is it ethical for a government to tell me I can't take a drug that makes me feel better? Uh, and then I also want to look at whether or not it, it w- works, uh, prohibition or banning access to drugs. I mean, I think we all fucking know the answer <laughs> to that. But yeah. Why yeah. why it doesn't work, right. let's just put it that way, um, and, and how flawed it is as a concept, as well as how badly the execution of it. And, and then also we'll drill into the, the myriad of reasons why it cropped up in the first place. But I think that when, when I started researching this um, this week, I, I, I decided early, early on that the best place to start here is to talk about prohibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in America in particular, and for our international audience, I am going to, later on in the series, we'll look at the different countries, but I'm mostly going to talk about the United States because certainly for the last 30 or 40 years, the international war on drugs has been driven in large part by the United States and them getting the rest of the world on board. Uh, We will touch on some other countries' experiences like we did in uh, the, the gun control series, but... For the for the first few episodes, at the very least, this is mostly going to be American centric. Yeah. If, if so, if I could just jump in for a second and do a little Quentin Tarantino here to to this topic, I, I found I came across um, a World Health Organization survey of uh, legal and illegal drugs they did in 17 countries uh, back in 2008. And basically they were trying to sum up, okay, we have all these tough anti-drug laws that you were talking about in various countries. You know, what did we find? And as a proud American, I I, I can't help but um, puff out my chest a little bit, maybe snort a little line and say that America pretty much came in number one in all the different categories. Uh, Americans were four times more likely to use cocaine in their lifetime than the next closest country, New Zealand, 16% versus 4%. Marijuana was most widely uh, reported worldwide, but again, America had the highest rate of use, 42.4% versus 41.9% for New Zealanders. So obviously those people like to get their party on. Uh, Tobacco, again, America claims the top spot with 74% versus Lebanon at 67%. But what it pretty much comes down to is uh, 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 availability and money. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Tobacco, 74%. Explain that data to me. Yeah. 74% what? 74% of Americans have used tobacco versus 67% people in Lebanon and 60% in Mexico. So Right. So not yeah. 74% actively smoking. No, no, I'm sorry. No, now no they have tried have it. used right. it at any they point have in used time. It. Exactly. But again, right. it's, right. it's like bringing home the gold for the Olympics. America, number one in each of those categories. And like you were saying, despite some very tough drug laws, 
when you have the means, the availability, and the desire, you will find a way to make it happen. But we'll get into all that, and especially once a government says something is illegal, it's not always the results that they expect that's going to transpire. Now, Americans apparently used to be hard drinkers. Yeah, fucking hell. In, in 1830, mm-hmm. on average, Americans consumed 1.7 bottles of hard liquor Woo! per week. Right. Which is three times the amount that uh, Americans consume today. Now, 1830 uh, was a very different time. Uh, it also happened to be the period of the second Great Awakening, religious revival. Mm. Um, and if anything's going to make you drink a lot of booze, <laughs> it's being surrounded by religious fundamentalists <laughs> preaching at you all the time. I, I would be, oh, fuck off and right. give me a bottle of vodka, Grab seriously. Yeah. Um, so the, the, this amount of drinking that was going on in the US, um, and, and it, was a, it was an interesting time in American history, uh, a, lot, a lot of different, a lot of progressive ideas taking place. And there was a group of people in particular that were really bothered by the amount of drinking that was going on, certain Puritan religious groups, especially the Calvinists and the Methodists. You were raised, uh, what, what were you raised as, Ray? Good God. Some sort I'm, of a Baptist? I'm the, uh, the Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, but we started out as uh, Baptist, yes. Baptist, right. Yes. Scared now, the shit out of me. The Calvinist, Methodist, Puritanical view of booze at this point is kind of interesting because if you go back through the history of Christianity and booze, uh, their approach, their attitude towards booze, for, for, for the vast majority of church history, Christians generally didn't have a problem with alcohol yeah. as being a common part of everyday life. Um, it gets talked about uh, a lot in the Bible. It's mostly viewed positively in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the fruit of the vine, it was part of the the Eucharist, the, the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, Catholics obviously used it um, to uh, uh, get little boys drunk so the priest could rape them. Um, it was used a lot, very, very, in lots of different ways yeah. throughout uh, the history of Christianity. Um, most Christian denominations believe that both the, the Bible and Christian tradition taught that alcohol was a gift from God mm-hmm. to make life better. Yeah. Uh, overindulgence was to be avoided. Right. You shouldn't get drunk. That was maybe sinful or at least a vice. You could get into trouble, do stupid shit, wake up the next morning in Vegas. and, and <laughs> you know, With your with, wife's brother's wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there. Or your, or your wife's brother. <laughs> um, and go, hey, what? Um, but if, but, you know, generally speaking, their attitude towards alcohol in moderation was positive. But yeah. the, then in the mid-19th century, yeah. some Protestant Christian denominations moved from a position of allowing moderate use of alcohol, moderationism, to either deciding that you should avoid it, abstentionism, or that it should be completely prohibited, prohibitivism. (laughs) Sure, sure. I shouldn't have had so much to drink before I tried to say that. Prohibitionism. I think that's how it is. Prohibitionism. Thank you. Um, And, and, 
this was kind of weird the coming from these Puritans because when the original Puritans migrated to America, when they moved from England to America because they wanted to be religious fundamentalists in England and the other religious fundamentalists said, no, you can't be a religious fundamentalist. And they were like, fuck you, we'll go somewhere where we can be religious fundamentalists. Um, they were big drinkers, the yeah. early Puritans. Yeah. When they went over, they took a ton of booze. They drank booze everywhere, anywhere, all the time. Um, again, in moderation, they were like, yeah, look, we're Puritans, sure, right. but come on. Let's let's not get crazy. Right. We're get, still we're still going to get shit faced on a Saturday night, even right. though this ain't Footloose, <laughs> motherfucker. Like I'm no dancing. Away. Sorry, but Sorry. we're going to get drunk. Yeah, yeah. and we we've moved, we just moved to a a, a country where there's nothing. There's no right. infrastructure. Right. There's a bunch of bunch of people who live here apparently, and they're not very happy about us being here. They, I mean, they gave us food though. Yeah. They came. Yeah. We, we we arrived up. We were starving. They gave us food. Oh, they nice. taught us how to grow crops. We killed them anyway, but uh, we were drunk. Yeah. We were, but but you know what we're going to do? We're going to get drunk again every year on November Woo! something, Woo! and we're gonna we're gonna celebrate the fact that we killed them anyway. Yeah. That's we're going to be Thanksgiving. We're going to give th- <laughs> give thanks that we just we kill them. We kill them anyway. Yeah. That's what we're giving thanks for. They gave us everything off the right. off their backs. They said, "Look, you're interlopers, you're invaders into our country. We've been here for thousands and thousands <laughs> and thousands of years. But sure, come on in. I just think, don't kill us. I, and we kill them anyway cuz we fucking love a good laugh, I really." Think, I think we kill I think we we were given thanks because we had guns and they didn't. I think that's the actually the accurate. Mm-hmm. No, but the uh, thing was the English heritage had declared that water was generally bad for you, and considering the sanitation standards of the day, it was probably true. Yeah, so beer or something like that is a safe substitute because you you process it, you boil it, you 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 know burn all that stuff out of there. So yeah, they drank it during breakfast, they drank it at lunch, they drank it at, at dinner, and again in moderation, it was considered a like a food. It was um, it showed your social status, but again done in moderation, these people generally did not have a problem with it. And I just want to throw this out. Out from the from the greatest human beings who ever lived, the American forefathers. Uh, let's see here. Benjamin Franklin <laughs> said, "Beer is living proof that God loves us and wants to see us happy. Uh, wine is is necessi- necessary for life." Thomas Jefferson and George Washington said, "My manner of living is plain: a glass of wine and a bitten bit of mutton." So, like you said, these people drank incredible amounts of uh, at the time, but it was mostly to replace water, uh, which wasn't as safe. And you know, I'm sure some of them got carried away, but in general, it was just part and parcel of the culture, and a lot of them were able to do it moderately. At what point did they realize you could just boil water and it would be safe? I mean, it doesn't seem well, like what, what's a huge the leap. what's the motivation? Look, here's some boiled water. Mm, no, no, you want a beer? No. Beer. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But then, as I said before, the Second Great Awakening happened. So that's the name given to this big religious revival, Protestant religious revival that happened in the U.S. It started around the late 18th century and then grew through till about 1850. It was a backlash, really, in lots of ways against the Enlightenment, mm. uh, uh, the, 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 the rational thinking, the skepticism, the deism that came out of the Enlightenment, which, as we know, the uh, original tax jo- dodgers, <laughs> a.k.a. the Founding Fathers, were, were mostly uh, deists. Uh, do you know what a deist is, Ray? Do you know what deism is? The opposite of nidism. 
No, please tell me. Um, well, deism uh, or is a bit like pantheism. Um, oh. It says that the universe and God are the same thing, that God is really impersonal. Um, mm. It's the entire universe. It operates by sort of natural laws and... And uh, he doesn't, he, it's not a he, it's an it. It doesn't give a shit about us. It's not sticking its nose into your underwear to see if you've circumcised it, it or, or if you're, <laughs> you're jerking Christ. off. It, it, it does, it's, it's, you know, and, and it's an impersonal, impersonal underlying force. Let's call it the laws of physics, right? For right. modern terminology. There's the, God is the laws of physics. Yeah. Right? Um, so most of the, most of the uh, educated elite or not most, maybe, but a lot of the educated elite coming out of the Enlightenment, um, including most of your founding fathers, were were deists. They were skeptics, um, and so there was a big backlash against that movement. The religious preachers at the time sort of tapped into sort of the dumbing down of of religion as well. It was all about emotion, appealing to the supernatural. It was about standing up and cheering and clapping and and I guess America had been through a lot of harsh shit yeah and they were just trying to well, I think part of it was tapping into trying to make people feel better about themselves and about you know what, what was coming ahead it was trying to post uh, suffering all from post-traumatic stress um, and rather than say well a lot of them were drinking too a lot of them had hit the booze to try and deal with that oh, yeah. uh, as well as morphine and lots of other things as we'll get into. But so the, this big religious revival was part of it. This is when the Mormons were created. Joseph Smith uh, created the Mormons as, as part of, of the Latter-day Saints, as they're officially known as, as part of the Second Great Awakening in the early part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. It's also when the Seventh-day Adventists came along, the Churches of Christ, all that sort of thing, all of these new Christian denominations, each with their own kind of idea, came along. But some of it was based on this idea that uh, the second coming was coming. Um, the, the second coming is coming. Jeez, you know, look. Where? Where? I know he, I know he said he was coming back, yeah. in, 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 you know, just before he died, right. which we believe is around 33 CE or AD. Um, and I know Paul, when he was writing his epistles in sort of the late 40s and the 50s, said that it was going to happen while he was Paul was still alive. Mm. Ego much? And then I know... Huh? Ego much for Paul? <laughs> I don't think it was ego. I don't think it was about Paul. I think Paul just said, it's it's look, it's coming. Any day now. That's what... Paul's epistles... Yeah. Paul's epistles, which are the earliest writings in the Bible, basically are all about Paul saying to his various congregations, listen, um, don't worry about it. He's coming tomorrow. Maybe next week. Uh, certainly by the end of the year, he's coming back. He's on his way. Uh, he's on his way. I, he told me himself because he talks to me. Right. He's coming back. So listen, um, if you're not married at the moment, don't bother getting married. Um, don't worry about making any money. Just give it all to each other. It'll be all fine. You don't need it anyway. Um, don't worry about this, that, or the other. Don't worry about anything. Because it's all over. It's all over. It's done. It's dusted. I should know. God talks to me directly. And if you can believe anyone, you can believe yeah, God, right? right? That's what God tells me. God, When Jesus comes to me, he says, listen, if you can believe anyone, you can believe me. Right. 
Um, so I'm telling you, it's all, but you know, while we are all still alive, says Paul, the second coming is going to happen. And then Paul died and it hadn't come. Aww. So uh, it, when, you, when you read the Gospels in chronological order, Mark, Matthew, Luke and John, you see them. This whole idea of the the, the second coming mm-hmm. sort of goes. Um, oh well, it's it's any day now to um, look at their watch. Any to day. one day it's gonna come. We don't know when exactly, but one day it's gonna happen. To eventually listen, stop talking about. I don't want to. Don't Get fucking ask. Life. Don't ask me again. It's like, are we here yet? Are we here yet? Are we here yet? Are we there yet, Dad? Are we there? I don't want to hear. If you ask me one more time when one Jesus time. is coming, I'm going to kick you out of the car. I'm going to pull this turn car this over. Planet <laughs> <laughs> turn this planet yeah. around. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. in the early 1800s. Um, they, they, they decided, oh, oh, all the signs are there. He's going to come any minute now. And that it was their job, these new Puritans, the more pure Puritans. We're even purer than the Puritans, man. Wow. We are so pure. Blinding white. They figured it was their job to purify society. Sure. To prepare for the return of Jesus. Um, so their, their whole mission was about personal perfectionism, personal holiness, your body is a temple, all this kind of right. stuff. This way, and a lot of them forbade booze and tobacco and caffeine, um, even though at least booze was was treated well in the Bible. They went, nah, the Bible doesn't know <laughs> what it's talking. Fuck the Bible. What does the Bible know? I'm here um, to tell you. Yeah, like yeah. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, like Paul said, ah, Jesus talks to me directly, and he says, nah, no booze. Nah. Raping little girls, uh, <laughs> that is okay. I'm up with having a 14-year-old bride and 40 other wives, stealing wives away from men in the church so I can fuck them, telling them God told me to fuck them so they feel like they have to do it. And then when their husbands find out, going, nah, she's full of shit. I never did that. Uh, Fuck you. That's okay. But having a coffee in the morning with your breakfast, that is right out, God said. (laughs) No coffee. Um, So in, (laughs) in this... New, more pure than pure Puritanism is when we see the American Temperance Society being created in 1826 by Calvinist minister Lyman Beecher. Nice name. Father, of course, of... There's another Beecher? No, who who is it? Ray Harris, your... Topic is this show. Your time starts now. Lyman Beecher was the father of which famous American author? Um, I don't know. And Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, damn. So Beecher and his family were big supporters of the abolition of slavery, women's rights, and uh, not drinking. Yeah. So the, the, this, this sort of this progressive era where they're trying to fix society. They're looking around. They're going, okay, well, what, what can we fix? <laughs> they were just, they were like, do I, we, you don't call it Bunnings. What's, what do you call your big uh, hardware store, like the fucking big warehouse hardware place? Um, Lowe's? Is it, there's Lowe's. Is it there's Lowe's, something like Lowe's. Ace. Uh, I'm drunk. Okay, so that, that's enough. That's enough. One, <laughs> let's say Lowe's. 
So, <laughs> or Bunnings for Australian right. listeners. I'm sorry if you're in the UK. I don't fucking know which I've ever there. Canada, whatever. It's like um, me in a Bunnings on a Saturday walking around going, oh, shit, look at all these tools and shit. I don't know what to do with any of it, but I just want to fix stuff. <laughs> I just I just feel like Get my hands if I had enough it. of these things, yeah. if I buy this really expensive thing that might be a drill, <laughs> I could probably fix something with it. I don't know I have anything to fix, but I could fuck find it, you know, something. like... I could find it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what these that's what these people were like in the early 19th century. They're like, we just want to fix shit. <laughs> we we got the bug and they didn't have a Lowe's or a Bunnings back then. They didn't exist, so they you know, they just decided to stop people from drinking. So but the, but actually in all seriousness, the thinking behind the Temperance Society was actually quite good. Um, there was a lot of uh, violence, uh, particularly domestic violence. Men getting drunk, beating up their wives and, and their kids. Right. And so it was sort of the, 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 the forerunners of the Me Too movement. Oh, yes. They, they were trying to ban alcohol yeah. in part to make society ready for Jesus um, and also to prevent domestic violence. So it did have a, a legitimate, uh, some legitimate thinking behind it as well. I don't want to take the piss out of it entirely. If I could, if, if I could just give that some context for for a moment. So, like you were saying, the American Temperance Society forms in 1826. Uh, they're going to take on a lot of issues: slavery, alcoholism, uh, Mormon polygamy, that kind of stuff. Uh, in the 1830s, the temperance movement gains a lot of momentum, and they begin to advise people to abstain from alcohol. And this carries on to 1851, where the state of Maine becomes the first to uh, have a law of prohibition. And right, and a couple of years after them, another 13 states are going to follow Maine's example. Now, Maine's law is going to be pulled back in 1856. But again, there was that time for the early uh, 1850s, the first half of the 1850s, um, where, yeah, so you had 13 uh, states banning uh, alcohol. So this, this movement, whether it's coming from the women who are driving everybody crazy, it's coming from the church or whatever, it's trying to stop domestic abuse. It is having an effect. They are gaining momentum and a lot of people um, are going along with it thinking that they are improving not only themselves, their families, but they're also improving their society as well. Within five years of the creation of the Temperance Society, they had 170,000 members who had taken a pledge to abstain from drinking distilled beverages. So not not just beer, but distilled um, is the main focus here, uh, your, your hard liquors, because they were, it was cheaper to get really drunk on, you know, the, the high alcohol content. Within 10 years of the creation, they had more than 1.25 million members who had taken the pledge. Mm. So it really did take off uh, very, very fast. Um, and they were pushing for the mandatory prohibition of alcohol rather than just voluntary abstinence, which is mm -hmm. sort of a, an important uh, point. Um and, and so they, they were interested in other issues, as you said, but they were mostly focused on driving abstinence followed by prohibition. In many ways, they were the first U.S. social movement organization to mobilize massive national support for a particular cause. They're basically the forerunner to the NRA, who we talked about mm -hmm. in the last Exactly. Season. Single issue organization. Exactly right. 
Um, now, at the end of the American Civil War, um, the National Prohibition Party was founded in uh, 1869. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, was founded in 1873. The WCTU uh, was pushing for the prohibition of alcohol, again, to prevent uh, abuse from alcoholic husbands. And then you mentioned Maine had a law passed before, but in 1881, Kansas became the first state to actually outlaw alcoholic beverages in its constitution. I just wanted to mention something real quick. You were talking earlier about the domestic violence. Uh, yeah, so after the Civil War, where there's a lot of alcoholism, a lot of violence, and what's going to creep up from post-Civil War to 1900 is there's a lot of saloon-based political corruption that we'll get into, but the point is there's now something tangible within the urban centers for these two people to really focus on. So, uh, yeah, so the, the Prohibition Party comes along. It is the oldest existing third party in the United States. And when they get together with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, they become a very powerful uh, force. And it's pretty much um, reform strategies based on applied Christianity. You can just go around and, and quote the Bible or whatever, but these people are taking what they consider to be Christian values and applying them to everyday life. And like you were saying earlier, they're doing more than just asking people to stop drinking. They want to be able to force everyone to stop drinking, but again, for their own good. Now, getting back to uh, Kansas in 1881, there's a famous woman called Carrie Nation who became famous for walking into saloons, yelling at people, and then using her hatchet to destroy bottles of liquor. Hell yeah. Who's going to stop her? I wonder how what her husband was like. <laughs> he was afraid to come out of the house. Yes, her honey. Her Carrie A. Nation. She carried around a hatchet, and she was going to save everybody, whether they, you know, she would chop his dick off. So, again, she would just go in there. She would abuse people verbally. She would just smash these things. And pretty soon she had followers, a lot of other women. And even though this kind of radicalism wasn't the norm, uh, it did get attention, and she was able to capitalize on that and spread her message because, obviously, these kind of stories are going to be put into the newspapers. And then in 1895, the Anti-Saloon League was created. Now, um, they called him Barry and Stan's marketing agency, apparently, <laughs> said, uh, look, we're creating this new thing and we need, a, we need a great name. We need a really, really first-class budget is no issue. We really need a great name. And Barry and Stan said, all right, all right, well, let's give us a bit of a brief. What, what are you about? Uh, well, we don't like saloons. Right, right. You don't like saloons. Um, anything oh. else? No, that's that's no. really it. We just We're don't like we don't yeah. like saloons, right? Yeah. Okay, how about the uh, non-saloon group? And <laughs> uh, uh, okay, uh, the the um, no more saloon. <laughs> not in my not on my watch. Uh, Organization. No, no. That's no. And and after ten minutes in a line of coke, they came up with the anti-saloon <laughs> league. They're like league. League sounds. Like, you know, uh, uh, we don't have a League of Nations yet. Like, the Greeks had lots of leagues. Let's call it a league. 20,000 leagues under the sea. That was popular. Let's just. And for an extra extra $10,000, you can shorten it to ASL. Yeah. Is that not fucking catchy? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Assle. Assle. (laughs) We'll just call you the assles. No. Hey, are you an assle? 
Yeah, I'm an arsehole. Are you an arsehole? Yeah, don't call me an arsehole. No, no, I meant, no. are you a member of the Anti-Saloon League? That's that's really what Barry and Stan were like. <laughs> they're like, yeah, they we're going to we're gonna shorten it to arsehole because we think we're all a bunch of arseholes. <laughs> what? What did you say? No, 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 Anti-Saloon League. That's just the abbreviation. Oh, all right. Oh, oh Barry and Stan were like snickering. In the back no. room, <laughs> we call no. them assholes, and they, they, they we got away with it. We're, they're actually going to call themselves the assholes. The assholes are going to call themselves the assholes. Yeah, is this a great country or what? Oh, Let's go to Vegas. Oh fuck! Uh, so, so here's here's the part that I'm most proud of as an American. So let's bring in some good old. Not that I'm rushing things, but let's bring some good old fashioned racism in here. Oh so no, after, no no no! Wait 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 wait. wait. Okay okay. Right. Slow your roll, sunshine. So I my it's slowed. Now, the arsehole was uh, founded by the chief arsehole, um, religious fundamentalist Howard Hyde Russell in Ohio. Uh-huh. Nothing good's ever come out of Ohio. What's, come, what, what's ever come out of Ohio I that's can't. any good? Where is Kirk from? That's Iowa. Never mind. You're absolutely right. You are absolutely <laughs> right. Um, I've driven through Ohio, I think. And yeah. uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was maybe it was Idaho. Know. Was it Idaho? I Iowa? don't know. See, I don't know. It's so it's such a non-issue. It gets confused for other states where, all the time. Where is Ohio exactly? <laughs> I've driven it's through north like, west you know, of me. I always have to Virginia. ask. I always have to ask Chrissy. Oh no, I've never driven. That's I've never driven through that. No, yeah. that's that's you're not missing much. Wrong side of the country. Anyway, pretty sure. Let me let me pull up the Wikipedia page. Uh, you go right ahead. Who important has come out of Ohio? <laughs> yeah, nothing. It's actually Wikipedia <laughs> states that if you don't believe me, it just it starts off by saying nothing good has ever come out of Ohio. <laughs> so there you go. For don't fucking send me hate mail. Where was <laughs> Wikipedia. I? Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, now the yeah, the, the arseholes. The arseholes became the most powerful. Prohibition lobby in the country, and it's still yeah. around today. I'm sure you probably have met an arsehole and didn't even realize it. <laughs> but, uh, they're now called the American Council on Alcohol Problems, the ACAP. Ah, uh, no, arsehole's better. It took them. It took them 120 years, but finally they got they the joke. Finally, yeah. somebody said, they're "You realize? Like, oh. You realize?" It was Barry and Stan who came back in, and they said, "Seriously, you went with that? We never thought." That you would go with that was just a joke. You're calling you yourselves can't wait assholes. You to turn around and come back in. Yeah, <laughs> but you never did. You really you made you made up those t-shirts that said I'm an asshole, and you walked around and you wonder why people have been kicking you on the ass all these years. Like, <laughs> I'm me a proud on. American asshole. Yeah. yeah. So um, they changed their name eventually, and and uh, that's all good. But the, a key asshole in the original yeah. asshole <laughs> movement was a guy called Wayne Wheeler. Did you reel about Dub Dub, as I like to call him? I did read about that. Uh, And I personally think that he was the love child of Stan and Barry. As we're going to see, he's going to take marketing, add in a little violence, and um, and turn it into whole into to something new. But I just wanted to make the point before you move on. The anti uh, the asshole league becomes so powerful it pushes aside the women's Christians Temperance U- Union and the Prohibition Party, and they're going to go on and focus on other stuff like women's suffrage. But this this place this um entity becomes so vast it becomes the number one leader as far as trying to uh, get prohibition to be the law of the land. So this thing takes off in eighteen ninety three or ninety five, depending on which uh, uh, web page you go to. But it but 
but between um, bringing all together all these different uh, uh, denominations of faith and all these different organizations of charity and things like that, they become the largest organization very quickly, and they are setting the tone, and they're going to have a lot of influence in the next couple of years. And that's all because of Dub Dub. Now, as a young man, Dub Dub had been stabbed through the leg with a pitchfork by a farmhand who was drunk. He didn't get over it, I guess. He never got over it. He dedicated the rest of his life to banning pitchforks. No, wait, no, he didn't go that direction. That was... No. He did consider that for a while. Um, Yeah, yeah, then he decided to go after booze instead. I I would have gone after farmhands myself, but no, he went after... He went, uh, he went, took the booze. He did try and get pitchforks banned. He spent 20 years on that. Didn't work. So he uh, went to plan B, which was to (laughs) booze. But Dub Dub, Dub 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 is actually important because he invented pressure politics as we now know it. Um, it's, it's sometimes referred to as Wheelerism in his honor. Um, he, he kind of pioneered the use of mass media and mass communications to, to persuade politicians mm-hmm. that the public wants some kind of particular action taken, right. to put pressure on the politicians. Yeah, well, switcheroo. And he was very, very good at it. He was so good, he was able to get people from both major parties voted into government um, if they if they would support prohibition. Yeah. Um, he also strongly supported getting women the vote. Of course, um, in the early twentieth century, ah. women women couldn't vote because, quite frankly, they're women. Men are cunts. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, like sorry. Uh, you don't you don't want women voting. No, like if they vote, what are they going to like? Seriously, look, ask Donald yeah. Trump. Women, women shouldn't be voting. Jeff spent Jeff Jeff. What's his sessions? sessions. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to work on that too. Yeah, he's working yeah. on that. But you don't want the you don't want the women or the darkies or poor people no. to vote. Quite no. frankly, uh, no. hey, this was this was America in the early twentieth century. Right. The or darkies the did, from Ohio. Sorry, go the, ahead. the darkies did get the vote. But uh, as we will see, a lot of effort was then spent trying to make sure that they couldn't actually vote, even though legally they they, they were allowed to. Um, so, according to Justin Stewart, what's in about I'm Stewart? Justin Stewart. He was uh, sort of press secretary or publicity secretary for Wheeler. He said yeah. Wayne B. Wheeler controlled six congresses, dictated to two presidents of the United States, directed legislation... Legislation? (laughs) Fuck, I need some... Give that man a drink. I need some whiskey. Directed legislation in most of the states of the union, picked the candidates for the more important elective state and federal offices, held the balance of power in both Republican and Democratic parties, distributed more patronage than any dozen other men, supervised a federal bureau from outside without any official authority, and was recognised by friend and foe alike as the most masterful and powerful single individual in the United States. He was basically Rupert Murdoch. Right. In uh, the early 20th century. 
but he had God on his side. I just wanted to mention something about Wheeler real quick. So he does not, and he figures this out pretty early, he does not focus on educating people about the evils of drinking. Fuck that shit. Like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, he goes after the political influence of the brewers. For him, it's all about political power and political purpose. And he is using, as you said earlier, using uh, willing to use any means necessary. And he becomes known as the dry boss for all of his... Uh, for all of his uh, influence and power. And like you were saying, he got people on both sides of the aisle, no matter who, you know, when someone's, when someone's about to be elected, he gets people from both sides of the aisle to vote for, for single issues or for single candidates. Fuck everything else that you, that you, that you want your candidate to do. As long as he's on board with this particular platform, it doesn't matter what, what, um, what side of the aisle he's on. And he was able to get people to ignore a lot of their other concerns and needs and vote on, on the simple single issue of prohibition. And he was able to get a lot of people put into power and they were beholden to him. And he had a lot of influence because of that. Yeah, I mean, again, it's very similar to the NRA's position on uh, gun control or pro-gun, anti-gun politicians today. Uh, very, very powerful guy. Before you started researching the show, had you heard of Wheeler before? No, absolutely not. Me either. I was just wondering, yeah. you know, seeing as you have a degree in American history, if you'd mm-hmm. uh, if it come up, because he sounds like he was one of the most important and powerful guys in the early 20th century. Well, well, here's the follow-up question. I've never heard of him, but have you ever heard of Wheelerism? Because sometimes people do something, as we're going to see in other shows that we're about to do, they have this incredible influence, but then they pretty much fade away rather quickly. But I thought maybe that Wheelerism had stuck around, but I've never heard of that either. I have, I think, heard of Wheelerism, but uh, I, you know, I can't say for sure. It sounds familiar, sure. but I'm not sure. I mean, I certainly w- wasn't part of my lexicon, no. Yeah. Um, but it is apparently in, if you if you go and study poli sci, apparently it is uh, at least in America, it's it's something that is get gets taught Wheelerism. Right. Um, now, <clears throat> at one point. The Anti-Saloon League, um, the arseholes, decided that the the best way to get people to stop drinking mm-hmm. alcohol was right. to poison it. Fuck. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean... It's effective. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. Um, uh, and we'll, I'll get into this in a bit more detail later, but uh, Wheeler... Uh, was quoted as saying, the person who drinks this industrial alcohol is a deliberate suicide. So they started amping up the amount of poison in industrial alcohol. He's going, look, if you're going to drink it, then you want to die. So fuck you. You deserve to die. Um, Charles Norris. Charles Norris, who was uh, Chuck Norris, the original Chuck (laughs) Norris, Charles Chuck. Um, Chuck Norris's grandfather, he was the chief right. medical examiner of New York City during the 1920s. He said it was our national experiment in extermination. <clears throat> oh, my God. Because as we'll get into, people were, you know, anyway, we'll get into what happened with Prohibition and, and that later. Um, the, the well, yeah, the Chicago Tribune talked about it in 1927, said normally no American government would engage in such business, meaning poisoning yeah. the alcohol, it is only in the curious fanaticism of prohibition that any means, however barbarous, are considered justified. 
But uh, I'll Jeez. talk about the poisoning of Americans with alcohol a little bit later. Um, I want to talk about uh, Richard Hobson. Is there anything you want to cover before I get to Hobbo? Oh, no, I was just uh, really getting excited about the whole racism and the saloons and the urbans and the immigrants, but I can, I can wait on that. We'll get to that. Right, so cool. the highest paid speaker uh, of the assholes was Richard <clears throat> P. Hobson. Right. Again, are you familiar with Richard P. Hobson, Ray? I know that he was a fucking American naval hero in the Spanish-American War. God damn yeah. those Spaniards. But before Sorry, I, told, I get carried away. But before Sorry. I told you about him a few days oh, ago, had no. you ever fuck heard of Richard no. Hobson? No, okay. I thought you were making up names. <laughs> Richard P. Hobson, he, uh, yeah, he fought in the Spanish-American War, um, became a bit of a hero, um, uh, <laughs> well, before that, even when he joined the Navy, he was one of these guys that believed in a total abstinence from alcohol and tobacco. And when he joined no. the Navy, everyone's, yeah, everyone said he was a total square. Um, they actually, he wrote a song uh, to... Thank God. He wrote a song uh, in response to that. of the guys in the Navy said, no, no, it's really no. not. You're fucking no. boring. Stop it. But, but he um, was going to show them. Yeah, he became a hero uh, after yeah. he sunk his own ship. What? Hey, what? 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 Richard, Richard's, Richard's ghost is talking to us. What's going on? Stop it. Oh, my God. Richard's got a Ouija board. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> that, that confused me. Um... Yeah, he became a hero during the Spanish-American War when he was captured after sinking his own ship. Yeah, uh, on purpose. On, on purpose. purpose, yeah. yeah. Uh, to block the port. It's kind of like right. he's like, "Fuck, fuck this war." What really? What happened? He's like, "Fuck this war." I'm at this is this is. Uh, I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot. Right? Like I'm at war all day. I can't smoke. I can't drink. Like this is just boring. <laughs> I'm going to just sink my ship and go home. But he got captured. Uh, yeah. By the Cubans, well, by the Spanish Cubans, and and uh, 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 became a bit of a hero for some reason. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump said he he prefers his heroes not to have been captured. Um, right. When he was released during a prisoner swap, he went back home, became super famous. Right. Uh, all he was trying to do was to create an excuse to go home, but uh, just backfired. Wanna, I want to be around white people. That's all. He's doing having dinner with the president. Uh, became a sex symbol. He was called the most kissed man in America, and he, he finally resigned from the navy in 1903. Went into politics. Became the Democrat representative from Alabama from 1907 to 1915, and is known as the father of American prohibition. <clears throat> 
good for now. This I found interesting. I just want to stick this in, go in the back in the timeline a little bit. When he retires from the Navy and he goes into politics, he's giving these speeches all over the country because he's now this rock star. And he finds it surprising that there's more, there's a greater fear in the United States um, of alcohol than there is the growing Japanese Navy, which was what he was concerned about and uh, being in the Navy. So he starts going around talking about the evils of rum and all that kind of stuff. And like you said, he was in, uh, he represented Alabama from 1907 to 1915. And he proposed more than 20 constitutional amendments to ban alcohol. This guy is not fucking around. Indeed. So when he left Congress in 1915, he was kind of kicked out, actually. He wasn't allowed to run again. He wasn't picked. Uh, he um, he dedicated himself to fighting first alcohol and later on, as we'll see, drugs in the country. He wrote a book in 1919 called Alcohol and the Human Race, mm. which uh, I managed to download a, a copy of, in a PDF, um, and uh, started to read it. Fascinating, Ray. I learned so much. Really, really educational. Right. Um, like uh, Richard Hobson, I too was, and this is a quote from the book, shocked to find this toxin causes degeneracy in all living things, disrupts mm. the germplasm. Um, and, and look, Ray, there's nothing worse than having your germplasm <laughs> disrupted. I, got, I don't know if it's ever happened to you. <laughs> I had mine checked last week. It's all good. It's good? Oh, yeah. that's good. Because, yeah. um, yeah, you know, if, if the germplasm in your gonads gets corrupted, <laughs> whew, it's uh, downhill from there. No pun it intended. Is. Yeah. 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 Um, get back to the book. Over. Disrupts the yeah. germplasm, blights offspring, and in the end entails sterility and extinction. I saw at once that instead of being a mere matter of local police regulation, its handling was the most fundamental and organic question confronting society, involving not only the integrity of free institutions, but the very lives of nations and the perpetuity of the race. Uh-huh. By which he means the crackers, but yeah, go ahead. He went on to say, and I think you'll appreciate this, it is scientifically impossible, says mm-hmm. the man who was just talking about germplasm, for an individual, a state, or a nation growingly to apprehend and follow the teachings of Christ mm-hmm. and persist in drinking alcoholic beverages regularly, even though temperately. The general decline of religion among a people as the drinking of alcohol advances is marked. If this drug be left a free hand, the Christian nations will destroy the unchristianized nations with rum before they can convert them to Christ. Christian civilization and drink cannot abide together. But Christians have been drinking booze for 1,800 <laughs> years, somebody. And Shut he said, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> Well, I've heard the expression better dead than red. Wouldn't it be the same better dead than not drunk? circumcised? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Drunk, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, that was his view on things. Um, uh, by the way, he grew up in Alabama, this guy, as you might expect from the fact that he was a congressman from Alabama. Um, obviously, 
very, very fundamentalist, bit of a nutbag. And uh, yeah. So there you Isn't have it. That Booze where Jeff and Sessions from? Yes, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and okay. who, was, who was the guy that was raping the girls recently uh, was getting uh, reelected? Moore? Trump was all for him? Moore, that's Moore. it. Roy Moore, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I don't have a record of Hobson's view on sex with fourteen-year-old girls, but um, <laughs> I imagine not, not cool. Yeah, why? Why not? So Joseph Hob- Smith was all for it, man. So that, who knows? That's true. I could be. I could be completely wrong. So I'm not, not, we pissed off the people in Ohio. I'm not, and I'm not Alabama. finished. I'm not finished. I got another another quote oh, in from one of yeah, his please. speeches. You're gonna yeah. love this. It's because yeah. it's sci- it's scientific, right? That's why you're gonna love it. It's all scientific. <laughs> Alcohol. Is a protoplasmic poison. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Protoplasmic, Ray. Would you. Uh, the three Ps. Yeah, would you care to uh, uh, define? Yeah, I know that you've got a degree right. in protoplasmic sciences. Um, would I you have like a degree exp- in limoncello. Would you like to explain yeah. protoplasm to the folks at home? Yeah, protoplasm is the second most poisonous. Uh, atomic plasm, I think, is the worst. But yeah, it's right up there. It's pretty, pretty bad. And you don't want to mess with that stuff. You want to listen to God who's speaking inside of your head and not drink that stuff. Protoplasm actually is the colorless <laughs> material comprising the living part of a cell, the cytoplasm, yeah. the nucleus, and the organelles, Basically what I said. Yeah. So it's a protoplasmic poison... The yeah. loathsome excretion of living organisms, the ferment of germs belonging to the family of toxins. It is an insidious habit-forming drug. Alcohol tears down the top part of the brain so that every time a man drinks, his willpower declines. In destroying Ooh. the seat of the willpower, alcohol destroys the seat of the moral senses and of the spiritual nature. The recognition of right and wrong, the consciousness of God and of duty and of brotherly love and of self-sacrifice. It is this same lowering of the average citizen's character in the past that entailed the overthrow of the liberties of Greece and Rome and other republics. See, there you go. It wasn't wasn't Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Augustus (laughs) that brought about the end of uh, the liberties. It was just booze. It is the greatest question in the life history of the human species, actually determining more than all other questions combined, the perpetuity of any civilization. So alcohol was going to be the end of civilization if it wasn't banned outright. Wouldn't that have happened already? I mean, it is, you know, 1915 or whatever. Shouldn't have happened already? Yeah, yeah, good no, point. But seriously, right? on, on, a, on a serious question, I mean, obviously this guy's writing stuff down. He's just pulling shit out of his uh, out of the air, whatever. He's just making up words or whatever. I mean, is is he maybe telling himself that the ends justify or the means justify the end? That he can do whatever as long as it scares people into not drinking. Then he has done his job. It doesn't matter that he's that he's wrong. That he probably knows he's wrong. I mean, you just get the sense that he's just at some point either batshit crazy or a psychopath. Well, I think he just... Uh, Did he justify he ta- it to himself? I think he just tapped into this uh, prohibitionist movement and uh, he's, he's a, you know, a non-drinker himself, tapped into it. I mean, there's, there is a, a part of people, when you don't drink or you don't smoke... 
like Adolf Hitler, you you want to make everyone um, not drink and not smoke. Like Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, and Adolf Hitler. Um, Hobson. The three amigos. Hobson, uh, yeah, wanted people to live good, healthy lives like them. And so they could, uh, you know, uh, 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 make America great again. That's what he wanted to do. But if you have to lie and you know that you're lying, doesn't that weaken your very argument? I mean, I, I'm just, I, I just really wish we knew what was inside of his head that, hey, God's telling me to do this, or maybe I, I was a hero during the Spanish American War and I don't want to give that up, so I want to keep writing shit or whatever. But you just wonder what's going on in his head. How does he justify it to himself when he knows, or hopefully he knows, that he is making up facts to support his claims? Like, well, shit, we make up facts all the time, Ray. How do you justify it? Well, yes, but we have a disclaimer. We make up a fact and then we giggle, thereby telling everybody it's a made-up fact. Maybe he used to do that too. He used to just giggle. (laughs) And it's been lost from the historical record. Uh, I think you're on to something. Anyway, we'll have more on Hobson later in the series uh, because he moves on from alcohol. Um, (laughs) But... uh, this is where, uh, in my notes, I have the racism, right? Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about racism and white nationalism? Well, I just, I just wanted to bring in a good old healthy, healthy dollop of uh, what America does best. Um, so in the post-Civil War era, um, obviously uh, cities are growing. A lot of ing- immigrants are coming over, looking for jobs, looking for a new life. And uh, they're going to cities. And, and so there's a lot of factories going up. And so there's increased uh, industrialization in the United States. Uh, there's a, a much larger urban workforce. And a lot of these men... Um, after work or before work or whatever, depends on which shift they work. Uh, they're going to uh, they're going to bars, they're going to taverns, they're going to saloons before and after work, and they're they're socializing, they're drinking or whatever. Um, but a lot of people um, start to see these foreigners hanging out in the bars, and they start to associate immigrants with alcohol, with bars, and it's all bad. Now, some of these balloon, excuse me, <clears throat> some of these saloon business models were actually very clever. They would offer you a free lunch, but the free lunches would have a lot of salt in there, getting you to purchase more drinks. Um, and again, this is something the Anti-Saloon League is going to focus on very much. But these people see the immigrants, they, they, they probably hear the different languages or the accents, the, the funny sounding names, and it just seems to bother a lot of the uh, people of the same color skin that I have have, and they just connected crime and morally corrupt behavior with these immigrants, with the bars, with the very alcohol itself. Which brings about nativism, which is the notion that America was made great by its white Anglo-Saxon ancestry, and uh, which obviously causes a lot of resentment against the immigrants, and who obviously do not want prohibition. They don't see a problem with working, then going to the bar, relaxing, talking to your mates, having a couple of beers or whatever, and then going home and starting over again the next day. To them, it's normal, but it's starting to upset a lot of people who were here before them. Yeah. Well, I think, Ray, that's where we will draw a line under uh, oh, the wow. first episode, because that we're an hour in, man. Yeah, wow, that flew, but you, you get a couple of drinks in you and time just flies. Pants come off. Does. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Your brother, Vegas, your brother in law, I mean. Um, and maybe your brother too. What the fuck? You're from Virginia. Um, before we uh, wrap up, I want to thank our latest subscribers uh, since we last uh, recorded. Um, we've got uh, Matthew Conrad, um, Aaron Baston, 
Uh, waiting for my webpage. Here we go. Uh, Matt Connolly, Galen Thompson, Gary Luckett, Jerome Taylor, Zlatko Raya, Brian Francisco, uh, Patrick Santino, Peter Ryan, Kieran Burns, and Nick Brock are the latest Thank subscribers you. to the show. Thank you very much, boys and girls, for your support. Yes. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Bullshit Field where we will continue talking about prohibition and then we're going to talk about the history of cocaine, the history of heroin. And do something. And, uh, and what? And do it. Oh, well, yeah, it's part and parcel. Um, research, my friend. Research. It's just research, yeah. I did, I was, I did spend the week researching what are the effects of cocaine and where do you buy cocaine and heroin? I was thinking, this isn't going to end well. Particularly when I'm trying to get into the US in a few days. I'm like, they're going to pull up my Google's history and they're going to go, oh, no, hello. He's not getting hello. in. Hell no. Yeah. Uh, hello. Some, some alert, alert Trump.